Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to, no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code S-T-A-P-L-E-2-0. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined again by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's up, dude? Hey, man. Excited to be back. Oh, yeah. I can hear it in your voice, just <laughs> dripping with excitement. I love I love every time before I introduce you, it's like a long sigh. Now, the, yeah. the people at home never hear this because I edit it out, and the thing is, what you don't know is in the background, Austin is the king of dad noises. He's not a father, but he's the king of dad noises. It was actually a skill. Like, I don't know, like, when that happened in your maturation process. You just started making noises over there, you know? But I love it. I love it in editing. It just, it's sentimental. It's heartwarming. Um, in any case, this is episode 169. This is our February 2022 research review so again, if you didn't listen to our January edition of this type of podcast, Austin and I are really active at sharing papers back and forth like, hey, this is interesting. And then invariably, about 50% of them get a response like, duh. And the other 50% are like, oh, cool. So we're limiting this to the oh, cool ones and uh, kind of taking you through our process of like how we read the papers what they say and uh, practical impl- implications, not just telling you a DOI or, you know, PMID and saying, go read, Re- read the research for yourself. But if you're research minded and you want to read them, all the links to the stuff we talk about is in the description below. But before we get to that, some other stuff that's happened uh, in the past few weeks, Austin, you were on the Iron Culture podcast discussing our co-star of the Barbell Medicine podcast, our favorite co-host who uh, has actually never said anything, but a lot's been said about it. Vitamin D. I know you were super excited to talk about once more. Uh, We'll link that podcast in the description below, but how was it? I assume it was adversarial. You guys just arguing the whole time? No, it was fortunately a very uh, productive conversation. I think we got a lot of uh, the important information across that I would like for people to understand about vitamin D and how much more complex the physiology is, how complicated the lab interpretation can be, how problematic um, you know, doing association kind of correlational studies can be between vitamin D and literally any disease in existence. And uh, extrapolating that to make actual treatment recommendations is, is a big issue as well. So um, hopefully got that stuff across. Unfortunately, I, I uh, due to some form of masochism or something, I went on to the, uh, I got a, sent a link, I think, to the Iron Culture YouTube 
video post of the podcast and saw some of the comments and somebody's like, yeah, well, lifeguards get a lot of vitamin D. So I disagree with the hosts and things like that. So, you know, we're not, uh, not, not catering to the, to the brightest minds out there. So <laughs> that, that checks out. Yeah. We all know that if from an occupational health standpoint, that lifeguards have the lowest risk of disease across the board. So that checks out. Uh, Interestingly, you, you may be fascinated to know that I was on the Massonomics. Also, just is it Massonomics or Massonomics? Because I have no idea. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I didn't ask them. I should have got. I should have should have figured it out. I think they say Massonomics. I like listened to the intro just to make sure. You know, it wasn't like a they weren't trash talking me before I came on there because they were right. super nice on the podcast. Yeah, but in my brain, it's Massonomics. Whatever. We'll let them decide. We'll let you let you decide. Uh, at the end, they did this overrated, underrated kind of thing. It's like when I ask you questions on the lightning round mm-hmm. for for funsies and they were like overrated underrated vitamin d it oh, like boy. it just came yeah out of nowhere <laughs> it, out of nowhere i'm like man from the top rope just bringing back <laughs> vitamin d so look if if you're listening to the barbell medicine podcast and you're wondering what our thoughts are on vitamin d we have a dedicated podcast to vitamin d and then we also have these other podcasts where we talk about vitamin d uh on other channels and we'll link all of that stuff in the description below and if after all of that you're just unclear as to what our position is on vitamin D. Uh, we're going to direct you to the, to the USPSTF, the United States Preventative Services Task Force, and their recommendations on vitamin D. And uh, that should that should suffice. If not, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, we can't uh, help you anymore. Right. Uh, other guest podcast spots, Derek, Dr. Derek Miles, one of our uh, injury rehab coaches and uh, PTs, uh, physical therapist, was on the Adaptabilia podcast. Did you listen to that? I've not had a chance to listen to that yet. It, it's excellent. I mean, of course, you know, it's not like I'm surprised. Like, oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> it's good stuff. It turns out Derek knows his stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it turns out. So we'll link that as well. If you haven't gotten enough of your barbell medicine fix and you want to get some extra uh, perspectives uh, based on what other people are asking us, we'll link those in the description below. Uh, also exciting, we have the Arnold Sports Festival. It's back, baby. 2022 ASF. I feel I don't know what the the trending hashtag is going to be on on the gram if it's going to be hashtag Arnold Sports Festival 2022 that seems long so I think it's just going to be ASF 2022 but you know I I don't know what else you could you could turn that into in any case we have some BBM clientele that are competing and uh, you're not going right I assume that you're I'm going to be probably somewhere in the hospital <laughs> okay yeah you'll, you're there in spirit but uh, so Sam Calhoun's going to be there. Yep. Represent it. Yeah, she's going to be there. Uh, Claire Zai is going to be there. Leah Lutz. Uh, I thought, is Caleb competing? I also heard that was happening, but unclear. I don't believe he, no, he's not competing there. He may be coaching uh, oh. an athlete there, but he's not competing okay. himself. Yep. Yeah, and maybe some other uh, BBM adjacent folks who are, you know, running the templates, doing the coaching. Yeah, we'll, we'll see them. So if you're at the Arnold Sports Festival and you see a guy who looks a lot like Jordan underscore Barbell Medicine walking around, it's probably me, but, you know. You can say hi if you want. Uh, it's it's so. Do you have any predictions on the Arnold Sports Festival uh, for the only thing I feel like we're qualified to talk about is the Grand Prix, right? And so if you're listening, you're like, "What is the Grand Prix?" Well, they take a very small uh, selection of international level powerlifters, and they basically have them compete against each other based on dots. Dots being the new like body weight to total weight lifted, you know, correlate. It used to be a long time ago, Wilkes, and then became IPF points, and now it's Dots. Uh, so Claire and Sam are going to do battle on that stage. It's in the main expo room, like area. When I competed in the Arnold Sports Festival, they had us in like a little, you know, 
expo room off to the side and uh we lifted at like you know 7 a.m like i remember weighing in at 5 a.m and you know i was like this is terrible and then no one was there right because it's like just too early but this is at night in the main expo center on saturday they used to do the night of the living dead there which has always got uh, great attendance watching people lift huge weights so in any case there's five thousand dollars on the line for each like division i believe there's a women's division a lightweight men's and a heavyweight men's any predictions for uh for the grand prix honestly i feel like humans trying to predict most things were generally terrible at it. that's fine. i think i think as you're describing you know the actual meat competition environment is going to be such that it as it typically does as as we've experienced in in competing in various uh, uh sporting kind of contexts it tends to bring out the best in people so i think that's my that's my main prediction will be exciting and uh the the level of competitors who get invited to that thing they are people who thrive in that kind of environment and it'll be a show yeah yeah i like that I don't, and you know we, we haven't gotten to like fantasy powerlifting level yet where you can like pick your athlete you know choose your fighter <laughs> And go build a powerlifting squad and like, you know, so, so no one's asking us for predictions for any, any sort of like pick them purposes. So we can just skip that. But yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be fun. And uh, we'll see if we can uh, put up a PR total, you know? Uh, all right. A few other things before we actually get into the meat of this podcast, or if you're a vegan, the plant matter, I guess, uh, <laughs> training update. So for me, if you, if you don't know what's been going on in my life recently, about a month ago, uh, it's like, I think it's 26 days. Exactly. I dislocated my right shoulder. Uh, and that was general badness as far as training goes. But today marks a significant achievement. Today was the first day I bench pressed over 300 pounds since the dislocation. Although Alan just sent me like a edited version where it's like my first ever bench press over 300 pounds, period. And I'm like, God, come on, man. <laughs> which made me think i don't know when the first time i benched 300 pounds like three it had to be 315 there's zero percent chance that i put 300 on the bar and just bench pressed it it all it had to be 315 like there's just i'm just particularly my- particularly when you were at that age and in whatever gym context you were in of course yeah yeah exactly i'm like oh there's no there's nothing between 275 or probably 295 because there's 35 pound plates and uh, 315 but yeah so shoulders feeling better i can tolerate a good bit of load on it in the squat i still can't probably get in the low bar position but i can deadlift that feels okay and bench press feels okay the thing is it's rapidly improving now and i'm kind of afraid of like oh yeah it feels fine and then you're like oh just load it up and see what yeah. happens We've so there. yep yep so just stick it stay into the stick into the the plan and uh you know kind of capping myself like what's the most you could load today if you're feeling fine um, yeah, we'll talk about that more. We've got an injury paper we're reviewing this, this month. And then I got a new belt. I know this is big news only in one household in the United States. That's my household. Uh, I finally am replacing my best belts belt that I got in 2010. That's 12 years now. And the reason I was replacing it, I got that belt cut when I, uh, and made rather when I was 176 pounds. And so the center is 28.5 inches. Like that's the center. That was my waist at the time. And I still have two holes left. So I'm on the third to last hole. Uh, And I've been there for the last few years. So it's not like I have a rapidly expanding waist. I'm just like, I feel like I'm, I'm having, I was having a tough time, like tucking the tongue in because there's like not enough tongue to like handle. And I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? I can afford a new belt. And I think it's just because I didn't want to break it in. 
anyway, so I got a new belt from Pioneer. I'm pretty excited. I've, I've heard nothing but good things about their belts. And I was hoping that uh, if the belt is good, then maybe, you know, since he's working with leather, he can make me some golf club covers. So if you're listening to this, and I know that he does because he sends me messages frequently about, you know, podcasts or our content. Just think about making me like a, a custom cover for my driver, you know, good advertise and I'll post it on the gram. Just think about it. Uh, in any case, how's training on your end? Things going well? Things are, yeah, I'd say things are cruising along. I um, reverse gripped 315 for 10, pretty uh, kind of out of nowhere, which is just a fun random PR. And um, I uh, last month I had a little flare up of my usual kind of quad tendinopathy, but I've gotten that pretty much calmed back down. And then I'm still pulling uh, with the same kind of programming setup that I've been doing for a little over a year now, basically. So pulling heavy singles twice a week on sumo and conventional. Typically, you know, it's like I've noticed that my kind of like everyday strength uh, on those, my average uh, single has drifted up to where now it's like most weeks I'm able to pull somewhere in like the 650 to 680 range, like, you know, on both sumo and conventional without an issue. If I'm a little below that, that's like a down week. If it's a little above that, it's a strong week. Uh, But that's kind of like more the range that I'm hanging in now, which is kind of a cool thing to see the kind of like I think about it like your floor of like where your where your strength is on most uh, uh, weeks. If that drifts up, you can be pretty confident that you're getting stronger. So all in all, going fine. Satisfied. Yeah, your (laughs) AUC, your area under the curve is uh, increasing. (laughs) I do remember the it was the day after I dislocated my shoulder. I went to my normal gym and there's no machines there. And I was like, well, I could probably deadlift something and put 70 kilos intolerable man so i went to this other gym that had a bunch of machines i was like i'll I'll do leg press i'll do some you know one-armed press work or whatever and uh you know some other isolation stuff because that's all i could handle but even loading the weights was problematic like trying to pick up a weight i'm like that this is not good uh but the next week i was able to deadlift 70 kilos and so now and then this week or this last week i deadlifted 285 or 290 so 630 something or whatever yeah you're on your way you know, if I just keep this progression, I feel like I'm about to PR in no time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, all right. Last thing we'll get to, we have upcoming seminars this coming weekend. In addition to the Arnold Sports Festival is uh, air pain and rehab seminar in Portland, Oregon. You don't need to do anything with that information because they're sold out, people. They're sold out. You can't go. You can't unless you already have a ticket. And if you already have a ticket, then you're good to go. And you're going to join 39 other people in this uh in the summer. So that'll be fun. They have a, just added another date in North Greenville, North Carolina. That's in May. So you can check that out. If you're curious uh, about learning more about our pain and rehab process, you know, pain and rehab, what do that's the seminar for you. And then we have our health and performance seminar. That's in Philadelphia in three weeks. We will be in Philly, my favorite city in North America, sans weather. Um, and we still have a few spots left for that. I think two or three. So if you're curious about or wanting to attend that, you can learn more about that on our website. Again, link in the description below. We also have all of our apparel back in stock. We got the Stronger Together with the Pillman Placebo. I wanted to call him Paul Sebo, but I didn't think that people were going to get that. So Pillman Placebo, Pilly the Placebo. The But yeah, Stronger Together shirts are in. Nuance shirts are in. All the competition t-shirts uh, in various colorways are restocked. Also, we have competition logo hoodies. All that stuff's on our website as well. If you want to support the Barbell Medicine brand, rep our team, get your gear. Uh, yep. You can find that on the website. Okay. Let's get in to the meat of this podcast. First up, we're going to talk about sleep and weight regulation. Cue 
you know, some sort of dreamy music. I, I assume there'd be chime heavy, you know, maybe like we're drifting off to uh, to sleep land here. All right. So Austin, you, this was a paper that you, I think originally had sent me um, basically there. Uh, this was investigating the, the effect of lengthening people's sleep if they uh, were already carrying too much body fat. So they were individuals with obesity uh, compared to just keeping their current sleep habits. Um, so the premise is this. Basically, in recent history, the prevalence of obesity has increased. So from like uh, 1999 and 2000 that year to 2017 to 2018, the, obese- the prevalence of obesity has increased from 30% to about 42%. And in a, a similar time period, the uh, prevalence of adults who are not sleeping enough has also increased from 26 to 35%. So not getting the recommended seven, eight hours a night. Uh, so do they, are they just correlated? Are they, you know, causational? And if they are, uh, if one causes the other, how and what do we do about it? Uh, side note, I'm also going to link this really funny website that has all this, all these spurious correlations that are insane, mind-blowing. It's like number of drowning deaths in New Hampshire to movies Nicolas Cage has put out. And the correlation value, the R value is like 0.9995. And you're like... That's incredible. Probably not, you know, causational, but still interesting. Uh, Okay, so let's get into this. This is the paper. The title is The Effect of Sleep Extension on Objectively Assessed Energy Intake Amongst Adults with Overweight in Real-Life Settings. Very descriptive title. I just... They didn't want to leave anything to the imagination. We're just going to just lay it all out there. This is from Tassali et al. It's published February 2022 in JAMA. They're from the University of Chicago. Uh, basically, took 81 folks. Uh, average age was about 30. They have 41 people in the control arm and 40 in the intervention arm. Um, all of these folks had a habitual sleep of less than six and a half hours per night, but they didn't or couldn't have sleep apnea or parasomnias or other things that were like, in addition to disturbing the duration of their sleep, were like disturbing the quality of their sleep. So those are the folks they used. The study design was four weeks in total, basically at a two week kind of baseline sleep where the people just did what they normally did. And then they were randomized into these two different arms uh, where two uh, during two weeks, people extended their sleep uh, or they just continued their habitual sleep of less than six and a half hours per night. No other changes were advised or counseled or whatever. So stuff like dietary pattern change, energy intake change, exercise or other activity change, whatever. They measured activity using a wrist uh, accelerometer. So some sort of Fitbit that was probably cheaper and uh, less accurate, but they used that nonetheless. And then, uh, and this was the cool part. They measured the total energy expenditure using doubly labeled water. Um, So this is a very accurate way to measure people's total daily energy intake. That's compared to like what you would get done at your local fitness club where they would put you in like some sort of on some sort of metabolic cart and be like, well, your resting metabolic rate is this. And so that we can estimate that your total energy intake is this. Uh, That's highly inaccurate and overall useless. Doesn't really tell you like how much food you should eat or whatever. It's just a way to take money, transfer money from your wallet to these people's uh, bank accounts because it doesn't really do anything. But the total energy expenditure measured by doubly labeled water, that's the gold standard of research for measuring energy expenditure. And then they finally, they measured body composition via DEXA, which is again, the current gold standard. So they did all that. The results, the intervention group, so the group that was uh, advised to extend their sleep by two hours, 
extended it about 1.2 to 1.3 hours. Uh, whereas the people in the control group did not extend their sleep at all. So that's kind of what you'd want to see. Ideally, the intervention group would have like extended it more, like the full two hours, but you know, 1.2, 1.3 hours, it's not nothing. Uh, they didn't report individual data. So like, you know, some people probably extended it more than two hours, other people less, and it just averaged out this way. But uh, so that's on average what they extended their sleep by. Uh, importantly, they had the same sleep efficiency as the control group, which means that the time they got into bed to the time they fell asleep was the same. It's not like they just spent extra hours in bed and didn't sleep or that their sleep efficiency uh, improved or whatever. Um, it stayed the same and it's the same as the control. Uh, so what happened? So principally the total energy expenditure did not change, meaning that the people who were, um, sleeping longer, they didn't burn any more calories. And the people who were sleeping less, they didn't burn any less calories. It stayed the same from start to finish. Uh, still though, the people, the group who extended their sleep, they lost half a kilo. So they lost a pound in the two week period. Uh, whereas the people who stayed the same with their sleep habits gained about a pound. Um, and they kind of sussed this out using, uh, uh, by measuring energy intake. So how much food the people were eating, the people who extended their sleep, they ate about 150 calories less per day, whereas the people who were maintained their current sleep habits ate about 150 calories more than what was reported at baseline, which comes out to like a 300 calorie difference. That'll come in handy later. So remember that about a 300 calorie difference between these two groups. Uh, so the take home here was that sleep, extending sleep to a more normalized uh, value. So somewhere that seven, eight hours per night. Um, is likely good for getting the energy intake back to a, an appropriate level. So reducing energy intake. As far as why this happens, well, Austin, I would love for you to weigh in on this. The, the paper itself didn't really weigh in on a, all the mechanisms, but this is something that you, both you and I have like gone far down the rabbit hole. Uh, what do you think the mechanism here is where sleep extension is like reducing energy intake? Yeah. So I think that, you know, if people have listened to any of our other discussions or, or conversations or lectures on this topic of obesity and uh, body fat in general, uh, a ton of this comes down to appetite regulation, energy, I mean, calorie intake, um, how that is kind of uh, uh, determined, how our behavior is, is influenced um, in the environment that we find ourselves in, which unfortunately, as we've discussed before, is uh, full of tasty treats uh, all over the place. Uh, <laughs> and so there are lots of things that can influence um, our experience of hunger, our appetite, our uh, drive to seek food, to consume food. Uh, and one of the variables that, you know, has been pretty clearly related to this is sleep. What I found interesting about this paper, obviously, was that it was a randomized and controlled intervention trial on sleep itself, which is not super common in this kind of uh, um, area of, of research. And, you know, like when you mentioned that the intervention group after their, they, they, they came in the first two weeks, everybody was kind of doing their normal thing. And then at that two week point, they were randomized to meet with the researchers and the researchers would give the intervention group pretty, I mean, they would review their prior data. They would, you know, interview them, give them kind of individualized counseling and individualized kind of sleep plan with the goal of increasing that sleep duration. So it was more than just like tell half of them, Hey, sleep longer and the other <laughs> yeah. people not. So there was a little, <laughs> um, and so, so that's kind of a somewhat, in, you know, unique design here. And the fact that, as you said, the, the results actually showed that they did in fact extend their sleep duration and their sleep efficiency stayed the same. So that means that they actually got more, more sleep during this period of time. 
And so, you know, seeing that their calorie intake spontaneously decreased, right? So it's not like these individuals are sleeping a bit more. And now they're again, as we've, as we've quipped before, they're like, you know, better morally upstanding citizens who are, <laughs> who are saying, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna uh, uh, eat less and move more. This is spontaneous behavioral change that's, uh, that is, is happening in this group without them being counseled anything specific with respect to their diet. And so I think that the most likely mechanism, which, you know, is, is something that we've seen, again, observationally in other contexts, and, and this is, as you suggested, this, this paper helps us, you know, look at how, how much uh, causation is there that's, that's going on here. We intervene on sleep, we extend sleep, and we see the spontaneous decrease in, in calorie intake and spontaneous weight loss. Uh, so I think that overwhelmingly, most likely, particularly given that we found that their energy expenditure, how many calories they burned in a given day did not appear to change. It's not like they ramped up how many calories they were burning per day. And that explains the degree of weight loss. Their energy expenditure using that gold standard method didn't really change. Um, although they did not directly measure how many calories people were consuming, they kind of inferred it through these other methods yep. like measuring body composition and, and weights and trending those over time. The, uh, the result of that is none other than that they decreased their calorie intake during this yep. period of time. And that's what led to this weight loss. And so then the question is what led to that decrease in calorie intake, probably uh, impacts of this sleep intervention on appetite, uh, which again is the kind of thing that drives our behavior in the, in the surrounding environment. There were a couple interesting things though, because I don't know that I have a great explanation for why the control group spontaneously increased their calorie intake. And sure. so, you know, one of the questions that I have or, or potential issues that you could take with the study is saying, well, for some reason, the control group who were not really told to do anything somehow increased their calorie intake during this period of time uh, from, from start to finish and actually gained weight. Maybe that led the differences between groups to appear greater than they otherwise would be if the control group was just, you know, completely weight stable doing their, doing their normal thing. Uh, but even if it, the, the, the size of this effect is overstated, I think that this fits with what we know from other research in this realm, that sleep restriction leads to increases in hunger, decreases in satiety, meaning decreases in feelings of fullness after a particular meal. There's some other interesting research that sleep restriction not only does has those effects in terms of decreasing uh, uh, satiety and increasing hunger, but also shifting food preferences, which I find kind of interesting. And so, you know, we see this with like the night shift phenomenon, like in the hospital, right? So what are people going for? Carb heavy, sweet, fat heavy, kind of, kind of uh, snack type foods in the middle of the night, uh, which tends to, again, result in very little satiation, spontaneous increases in calorie intake and, and weight gain over time. The last thing I'll last, I guess, two things I'll mention. One is that, you know, towards the end of this paper, the claim was that, hey, like if this deficit that we see was sustained, you know, we would project that people would spontaneously lose 12 kilos over three years. And it's like, well, cool. Uh, but the thing is that these kind of deficit uh, these deficits that kind of emerge spontaneously, they're not sustained over time. Sure. Because again, there are multiple uh, dynamic kind of interacting parts here. And so we know that weight loss, for example, let's say you lose that first kilo, well, there's going to be a spontaneous change uh, from that on your appetite and your hunger. So we know from other research that, you know, if you lose a kilo of weight, your appetite will increase leading to a spontaneous increase in energy intake of about 100 calories. And so that's why, again, achieving weight loss and sustaining it can be difficult because for many people, you can think about it as your body kind of fighting against you from the appetite hunger standpoint. And some people's fight them harder than others. That's why some people have an easier time losing weight and sustaining it. And other people have a 
extremely difficult time and where medications to help better regulate this appetite satiety system uh, can prove shockingly beneficial with some of the evidence that we're yep. seeing on some of the newer medications um, that are helping patients achieve, you know, 15, 18, 20% weight loss and sustaining it long-term. So um, that's that's the short story on this paper, I guess. It could go in a lot more depth, but uh, pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the correct way to interpret this based on the other existing literature is that the extension of sleep to a more, what I would call normalized or appropriate duration, as long as the quality is still good, helps better allow the appetite to be appropriate for the individual. Meaning that, yeah, you're not going to sustain this 300 calorie difference between, you know, sleep extension and, you know, current amount of sleep, like indefinitely, that's It's just going to shake out over time. But the, the big issue in individuals with obesity is that the appetite is currently sustaining a equilibrium where the energy intake uh, is matching these expanded energy stores, which is the body fat. And what you would want the body to do is realize, oh, shoot, I got all this extra energy. I need to tamp down my appetite so I can get rid of some of this excess energy that's not serving me. Uh, but that doesn't happen. Um, and there, the reasons why that doesn't happen are multifactorial. And this is one of many factors. And so the Kevin Hall tweet that we also included in the uh, description below kind of goes into a little bit more nuance about how things are likely to change over time. But yeah, if you sustained a 300 calorie deficit, you know, for years, sure. <laughs> you would waste you're gonna, away. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to lose a lot. You're going to lose a lot of weight by definition, right? The, the problem is, is that that's unlikely. And then multiple redundant systems are going to come into play to tamp that down. Uh, but yeah, increasing your sleep is likely uh, to uh, it result in a more appropriate appetite uh, for you, uh, particularly if you were underslept before. And the thing I, I would say about the people who were, you know, maintaining their reduced sleep, uh, they probably try to catch up a little bit on the weekends when they're not working or when they have access to sleep and more opportunity to sleep more. And in this study, they weren't able to do that. So that's why they may have like shifted up and you're like, hmm, this is a bigger difference than maybe realized. The last thing that I will say about this, and you know, no one's talking about it. If you sleep more, that's less time to eat. <laughs> because you're sleeping something yeah. to, something to think about guys think something about to, it. <laughs> yeah something to think about that checks out all right so that was a cool paper i actually that last part was a joke hopefully everyone else was laughing but uh you know, <laughs> just imagine we were on like first take or something on like espn yeah. that would be the thing it's like but what about the sleep duration and then total time available to eat okay uh speaking of controversial things austin you just are you do you just not like yourself or you like you want to add psychosocial stress to me because, you know, I read the comments and you're like busy <laughs> doing like real doctor stuff. You want to talk about vaccines? That's really what you want to talk about. Totally. Let's do it. <laughs> Sick. All right. So we're going to talk about vaccines, specifically the COVID-19 vaccine and the rate or maybe the a more appropriate term, the influence of the nocebo effect on adverse events. Um, so we're going to talk about that first and then we're going to talk about COVID-19. Uh, vaccination and exercise and like the timing of exercise, what it does to vaccine uh, uh, efficacy rates. Uh, we'll talk about all of it. And again, we'll just stir up controversy. Maybe we'll talk about mandates afterwards. You know, let's just, we'll just go all the way, just all the way. As an aside, do you ever, you ever notice like the time it takes from the, the stanza, like COVID-19 vaccine, the time it takes to get from that phrase to talking about politics 
is is inversely correlated with someone's like expertise in public health. <laughs> so like if you go from, you know, zero to, you know, politics, like real quick, public health knowledge, very, very low. If, if it takes you a long time to finally get around to politics, you're like, oh, maybe you actually have some education here. This is interesting. Anyway, chew on that at home. All right. So here's the premise. There's a global study, a global survey done in January of 2021, so a little over a year ago, where about half of the respondents uh, were worried about adverse effects from the COVID-19 vaccine. And we know that there's a history of vaccine hesitancy when people are worried about adverse events. We have that from basically every vaccine that we've ever, that's ever been recommended to improve public health. So... This paper was designed to assess what proportion of adverse events from the COVID-19 vaccine are due to nocebo, if any, and if it's a significant effect, like what should we do about it? So Austin, you want to start out first, like what is nocebo? What does that mean? What does placebo mean? I think people like, they feel like your buzz phrase is like nocebo and mine is nuance. That's like, at least, at least let's make sure people are using it right. What does nocebo mean? Yeah, well, I certainly don't identify with that as my buzz phrase, but uh, what would be your buzz? Do you have a buzz phrase? <laughs> probably not. I don't know. Probably not. All right, fair um, probably that it doesn't matter. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> placebo and nocebo are kind of opposing phenomena. Uh, you know, phenomena. The placebo side is one that people are generally more familiar with. It describes a situation where positive expectations about a treatment or intervention or something that's happening to you. Uh, result in better outcomes than you would have otherwise gotten. Uh, and nocebo is kind of the inverse of that, where negative expectations about this thing result in having worse outcomes than you would have otherwise gotten. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting in a variety of contexts in this particular uh, uh, paper where, or really any randomized controlled trial of a medical intervention where there is an active treatment and a placebo, when you look at the placebo treatment, there is always a fraction of people in that placebo group that report all sorts of side effects. So we give somebody this, you know, uh, physiologically inert thing that should not be exerting, you know, generating a substantial, you know, physiological response. And yet people receive it and then they report, oh, I had horrific headaches. I have diarrhea. I have pain. I have all these other sorts of things. And that's just kind of an interesting phenomenon on its own. But then when you take those kind of rates, those reports, and you compare them to how often people who get the active treatment uh, report these kind of things, it kind of raises some questions because people will invariably with these things report that they had, you know, all sorts of side effects to the active treatment if they get it in the real world. But then when you can, you know, look at the trials and you're like, well, you know, was it actually that medical treatment itself that caused this, you know, symptom that you're experiencing? Or was it more, going through the ritual of receiving that thing? Was it just, you know, the act of receiving a, a, a shot of anything that contributed to this? Or were you just going to get a headache anyway <laughs> around the time that this happened? Are you just tired in general because you're a human who experiences fatigue and then you have this thing and suddenly you're searching for symptoms, you might be uh, more likely to identify things that you were experiencing already or would have experienced regardless just in the aftermath. And then you again, do this whole correlational thing and you assume that one thing caused the other, even when it maybe didn't. So that's kind of the premise of this, of this study. Yeah. That third part we're going to get into at the end, but it's like what you would really want is a group in, the, in this like study, you'd want a group getting the vaccine. You'd want a group getting what they thought was the vaccine, but was actually placebo. 
And then you'd want a third group that was otherwise matched who got nothing, but were otherwise similar in, you know, every other way. And you way. just ask them periodically about their symptoms or whatever things they were having. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise the rate of like, adver- you know, what you think is a placebo induced adverse effect may be inflated or in this case, a nocebo induced adverse effect. Okay. So the study is titled frequency of adverse events in the placebo arms of COVID-19 vaccine trials. Again, very specific, left nothing to imagination here. Uh, We've linked this in the description below as well. This is published in January of 2022 this year in the JAMA network open journal. This is by Haas et al from Harvard. So you know, it's good. Uh, okay, here's what they did. They took, they had randomized controlled trials, uh, 16 randomized controlled trials. No, sorry, 12 randomized controlled trials, including uh, individuals over the age of 16. Uh, they solicited, they asked the subjects about adverse events within seven days of the injection. Uh, and then, you know, basically half the group got a placebo and the other group got the vaccines. So there's 45,000 total peep uh in this study about 22 and a half thousand in both arms insert your own dad joke about arms inserting the arm there's there's a vaccine joke in there somewhere that's just not coming to mind uh and so what happened okay you got 45,000 people again 22 and a half thousand got the placebo other 22 and a half thousand got the actual vaccine so after the first dose of the placebo 35 uh, percent about reported a systemic adverse event. That just means something that's unrelated to like the site of the injection, right? So they had a headache, they had nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, et cetera. Uh, Not just like my shoulder hurts or my arm hurts. Okay. Whereas 16.2% had a local, uh, reported at least one local adverse event. So that was from the placebo, 35% and 16%. The, after the vaccine first dose, 46.3% reported at least one systemic adverse event and 66.7% had uh, reported at least one local adverse event. So significantly higher uh, local adverse event. Uh, Basically, if you crunch all these numbers, the nocebo effect, the negative adverse event uh, attributed to getting the placebo dose was about 76%, accounted for 76% of all the systemic adverse events uh, and 24.3% of all the local adverse events. So that was after the first dose. Um, but it's pretty impressive, pretty impressive. After the second dose, uh, they found that the nocebo accounted for about half of all the systemic adverse events and about 16% of all the local adverse events. Um, basically just a bigger, uh, gap between the placebo and the vaccine. Interestingly, the severity of the adverse events was similar, uh, between the placebo and the vaccine after the first dose. And the severity was a little higher after the second dose, although the duration was approximately the same. Uh, the most common adverse events, I know what people are thinking, like a severe adverse events, what are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about like fever, chills, fatigue, joint or muscle pain, headache, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Those were the ones that were most commonly reported. Um, so we're not talking about, you know, people, you know, having like, I, I, I don't even know what to th- hear, like what, what I'm hearing anymore when people are like, oh, my cousin got the vaccine and his arm stopped working. You're like, what? Uh, anyway, and I, you know, apologies to everybody's cousin who that, that actually happened to, but I'm just, these are the most common adverse events. So Austin, what do you, you, you read this where a significant proportion of the adverse events could be chalked up to the nocebo response. What, what do you, what do you take from that? Like, how does this impact, you know, how you think about adverse events from vaccines? Yeah, I think that, uh, to summarize that about a third of people after the first dose, you know, in the placebo arm reported 
a whole bunch of systemic things. The systemic things you mentioned, fever, chills, fatigue, malaise, joint pain, muscle pain, headache, all sorts of things like that. And 46% in the vaccine group. So 46% versus 35% in that first, first dose group. And then in the second dose group, uh, it was about 61% uh, in the group that got the vaccine versus 31% in the placebo group. First of all, as far as the reports of symptoms after getting the actual vaccine, that is completely unexpected, uh, completely expected. I just said, I was yeah. say completely unsurprising, yep. particularly that it's a little bit more symptoms after the second dose. Again, this is not everybody's experience. I will say that my own experience, I did not have more. I had um, a, a somewhat, I'd say a moderate headache after the first, and then only a brief sore arm after the second. And that was it. So that I actually had an opposite personal experience compared to this, but this is again, much larger data set. And so the on average in general, um, the second dose tended to produce a little bit more of these symptoms. But again, it is unsurprising, completely expected for a variety of reasons that we discussed way back when we did our original podcast on the vaccine around the time that it was uh, initially approved and coming out at this point, I guess what approaching two years ago, something like that, mm-hmm. which is kind of wild. Um, and we continue, you know, we get, I've gotten asked, do you stand by the things that you said in that podcast? I still do I think it's accurate, still recommend it. Um, and so these sorts of symptoms are things that are normal when your immune system is being challenged and doing its thing. Uh, particularly when you are already kind of, you can think about as being sensitized to this thing with the first dose, and then you see it a second time. The whole point of this is to augment that immune response, get a more substantial, more robust, and more specific uh, uh, immune response to this particular foreign thing. However, the interesting thing about seeing these effects in the placebo arm is that, again, it is not entirely due to, uh, uh, it cannot entirely be explained by the contents of the vaccine itself, since a fair number of people in these placebo arms are also reporting these symptoms. And so I think that should make us just speak about this stuff a little bit more cautiously. Um, You know, we talked about this concept of uh, reactogenicity, which is a big fancy medical word for the idea that again, these vaccines, they stimulate and rev up the immune system. And to the extent that it does that effectively, you are probably going to expect some similar uh, type of symptoms as you might experience if you experienced uh, an actual uh, infection and your immune response got revved up a bit, right? You might feel a little bit fatigued, a little bit under the weather. You might have some chills. Again, that's all stuff that happens when you are faced with these kind of things. But not all of it is explained by this because people uh, in general may experience a lot of these things anyway. Like I said, people have headaches, people have fatigue, People have muscle pain. People might have some nausea. They might notice some little bit looser stools and call it diarrhea or something like that, whether on any given day, whether they've had a vaccine, a placebo or nothing at all. And so I think it's actually a little bit, uh, it may be a little bit of a mistake uh, to attribute all of these things that we observe in the placebo arm of this group to quote unquote, the nocebo effect. Um, And, and uh, there's a, a, Excellent uh, uh, Twitter follow I recommend for people. His name is Darren Dolly. He's a he's a um, statistician uh, who him and a colleague Zad Rafi they wrote and published a paper in response to a different paper in the New England Journal that was all focused on placebo and nocebo effects. And and in that original paper, 
uh, on the placebo nocebo effect, they made the claim. These are different authors said that these effects are powerful. They're pervasive. You know, people and, and people believe this. You hear people say, man, the placebo effect is a big deal. You should you should really, you know, uh, don't don't uh, uh, don't, uh, you know, minimize it. It has don't it knock have, it, bro. It can the have placebo effect real. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And of course, we would not disagree with the idea that it is a real thing. Uh, but where these authors challenged and where I would actually tend to agree is that the placebo effect and nocebo effect are nowhere near as powerful and pervasive as was claimed in that paper, nor as powerful and pervasive as people uh, tend to believe in the real world. And this is for a variety of reasons um, that are detailed in this short kind of editorial response paper. But one interesting one that uh, people might uh, uh, appreciate here is that uh, in a lot of these uh, a lot of these studies, people will look at how much better people get or conversely how much worse people get within a placebo arm and compare that to the differences that happen within a treatment arm. Whereas the proper way to do this scientifically is to compare between the two arms of the study. Uh, and because if you've had proper matching, pro proper randomization, things like that, then the differences between groups are all going to be erased except for the effects of the actual, you know, physiologically active kind of treatment intervention. But when you look at differences within groups instead of between them, then you can be prone to drawing some uh, uh, overly confident and potentially inappropriate conclusions. So one common example is that, you know, if we're going to uh, recruit some patients into a clinical trial um, to test some intervention, we will typically recruit them when they are feeling at their worst. So let's say it's a, you know, it's a, a trial to manage severe back pain or something like that. They're going to be recruited when they're probably at their worst, when they're feeling their worst and they came in and they got enrolled into this trial. And statistically, the most likely thing to happen in the aftermath of that recruitment is for pain to improve. This is this phenomenon called regression to the mean. So the odds are that people are going to tend to get better no matter what you do. And so if you randomize these people and you give them a placebo intervention and a real intervention, and both groups tend to get better, and you pay attention to what happened within each group, then you may be prone to say, oh man, look how effective the placebo effect is. I gave them placebo and they got so much better when really they were just statistically going to get better on their own no matter what, which is why instead what you're supposed to do is compare between groups and you look and see, was there a difference between the placebo group and the intervention group? If there was not any difference, the correct conclusion is not that placebo works just as well as this treatment. <laughs> The correct conclusion is the treatment doesn't work. <laughs> right. And so that's, you know, I feel like that is also can be generalized to a lot of other arguments and conversations we find ourselves in, particularly like in the pain, rehab, physical therapy, manual therapy realm, all those kind of things where people tend to get better, like in both groups and people will look, oh, even if this is, even if this acupuncture is all placebo, look how much better it made them. And it's like, no, you, you misunderstand both groups had the equivalent benefit, which means not that the placebo made them so much better, but rather the treatment doesn't work. That's actually the, when you compare across groups. You didn't understand the assignment. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Did you, just as an aside, that article, the response article to the original article about the placebo, yeah. and the, the title is nonplussed by placebos. <laughs> yeah. What? Dude, what? Like who's writing this? I yes, had to it look like it up. Some old old British person. I'm feeling oh. quite nonplussed. By yeah, this. exactly. He's smoking a pipe. He's like, I'm quite nonplussed by this. So just <laughs> if you're like me and didn't know what nonplussed means, it means surprised and confused so much that they are unsure yeah. how to react. Can <laughs> yeah, relate. So 
So short story is that I think that these effects are real, but I think that they're commonly overstated. And when trials are interpreted kind of in the incorrect paradigm that I mentioned earlier, you can be led to conclude uh, inappropriate things like all of this was nocebo when I'm not confident that that is the case, or if somebody benefits in these kind of things that all of it was placebo, which is often not the case either. Regression to the mean and measurement error in studies, particularly for like subjective symptoms like you know pain or aches or nausea or something, these are subjective things that are fuzzy. Uh, and uh, there's probably a fair amount of measurement error. Uh, so combine those two things, the measurement error and some regression to the mean, and you can explain actually a fair amount of what would otherwise be categorized as a placebo type effect. Yep. But as far as how that affects the interpretation of this study, I would feel comfortable saying that there are significant nocebo-related effects that people are experiencing when they get the vaccine that are not necessarily it's not that they're not real. That's just not they're not due to the you know physiological activity of the vaccine. As far as how much, uh, more difficult to say because again, there's not like a third group that we studied that were just like observed. Yeah. You know, they didn't get the the placebo, the saline. You know, just the fancy water, and they didn't get the vaccine. We just watched them over time, so we don't really know as far as the size. Um, but as far as what to do about it, you know, this is where we get to just pontificate. And uh, easy, easy place to get in trouble. But my my take on this is based on other, uh, particularly pharmaceutical agents that have a strong nocebo effect, like statins, for example. You know the the, the rate of people experiencing adverse effects uh, and the nocebo like sort of proportion is very high in those individuals. Like people having like a bona fide like you statins don't mix. This is like very yeah, physiologically that's, that's super based. Rare. Yes, but people experiencing, I got so, yeah, a little bit of muscle pain, and uh, I think if my muscles are wasting away, and you know, ten out of ten don't want, uh, that's far more common. So anyway, so so from that data and some other similar types of studies, I think that the the case that can be made as far as like what to do about this, there it's got to be a two pronged approach. One, it's got to be in the clinic, like when we're telling people about the adverse effects that they may experience, need to like frame those clearly. Like we, you know, as far as like how likely is this to happen? And then if, if it does happen, what does it mean? You know, so rather than people like dreading this potential effect and like, it means something nefarious or bad or whatever. It's like, yes, I understand nausea, vomiting, headache, fatigue, malaise. These are all unpleasant experiences that if you could avoid them would be great, but they may happen relatively low rate and compared to the alternative, uh, you know, probably a little bit better. Uh, and then also the, so that's one prong, like what happens in the clinic? So I definitely think we should be telling people like what to expect uh, and then framing that clearly. But then the other prong has to be the social learning. And, and, and I think this is probably a more modifiable factor. People are sharing all sorts of abhorrent, terrible, inaccurate information on not only just COVID stuff, but just it, like anything science related, science, health, fitness, intersection, all of that stuff. It's, it's terrible. And they're like, yeah, well, I'm just saying, or I'm just asking questions, whatever. I'm like, well, for one, who are you asking questions to? Because it's not the actual experts, right? If you have a concern based on your interpretation of stuff and you want to ask an expert, experts love to talk about their craft. They love to talk about it. They'll send you their studies for free. They might even have a private email conversation with you if you can you know, get through and you don't go to their spam inbox. But they, it just happens all the time. Ask me how I know. So I do this daily. I interact with actual like people who I've never met. Like I had a whole dialogue with Kevin Hall, and I'm like, like I'm having like a fanboy moment every time I get an email. Like, oh my god, this is so great. Uh, so that's thing one. Like, who are you asking it to? You're asking it to your friends who are not experts, 
or you're just posing this stuff to your friends and you're actively contributing to this nocebo effect. And the way you're doing it is by saying, here are some negative things without accurately framing it or clearly framing them. And the reason why that's happening is because you, you can't clearly frame them because you're not the expert. You know what I'm saying? Like you, I, if you were trying to do this in a responsible manner, you would have to be an expert in order to do so. And so without that expertise, I just, man, all this sharing stuff, it could be like so powerful, so useful on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's like, feel like a lot of negative stuff is coming out of it. And so I don't know, it would just be better if education was bet, like better throughout the entire developmental process. And then maybe we wouldn't have this issue, but I don't really know what to do about it. Yeah. Like if all of the world and society was like better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, but it's true though. I mean, I know you see it on Instagram, right? There's some people that you probably follow uh, friendships or acquaintances from various parts of your life. And you're like, why are you sharing this? Yes. (laughs) Nothing good can come from this. Yeah. Nothing good can can come from this. And if it's just about self-expression, like I get that, but there's gotta be a, a a better way. It's got to be a better way. I don't know what it is, man. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, it, instead of going down that that downward spiral into the doldrums, uh, but wait, there's more when we talk. We're talking about vaccines. We're gonna talk about vaccines and exercise. We get this question all the time, uh, particularly in the last two years. Uh, people were like, "Hey, I just got the COVID nineteen vaccination, first dose, second dose, whatever." Like. Can I exercise? Is it okay to exercise? Well, not only is it okay to exercise, we're going to probably convince you, I think, that it may even be beneficial to exercise. So this paper is published by Hollum et al. They're from Iowa State. This was published in Brain Behavior and Immunity. Uh, Interestingly, it says it's going to be published in the May 2022 journal, but it was available online in February. I'm like, yeah, that sometimes happens. I was like, what's this backlog like? Like, <laughs> yeah. man, brain behavior and immunity is popping off the chains. We're just, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the paper's titled Exercise After Influenza or COVID 19 Vaccination Increases Serum Antibody Without an Increase in Side Effects. Again, very specific. Uh, okay, so here's the premise Exercise preceding immunization tends to increase the antibody titers or level of active antibodies in the body. We did a podcast on this, I believe it's episode 94. I'm going to link to it in the description below, like exercise, immunity, immune system, what do. Uh, so that's what the where the existing research is. But the question is, does this happen with the COVID-19 vaccines? And the reason why you may be questioning that, or uh, people should be questioning that, is that, you know, these are novel types of vaccines. We've never studied an mRNA vaccine and like what happens with exercise as far as like antibody generation and, you know, what does that mean as far as like public health or counseling that should happen in the clinic? Uh, and in addition to that, is there a dose dependent relationship here? Like, do you got to do a certain level of exercise? Uh, and uh, if this does happen, like why? Okay. So here's what happened. They took uh, just under, just under hundred people and they put them into three groups. So group one, um, well, six total groups, but three, you know, different types of uh, experiments. One group, they actually studied the a vaccine for uh, a monovalent influenza virus, which H1N1. What? Like, <laughs> why is that in here? But anyway, they did that. So that ha- uh, half of that group got a vaccine for this monovalent uh, influenza virus and the other half did not. 
Oh, sorry, they all got the vaccine for the uh, this this virus. Uh, half of them exercised, and the other half didn't. Um, the next group got a the seasonal flu vaccine. There's about 28 of these folks. They all got the vaccine. Half of them exercised after getting the vaccine. The other half didn't. And then 36 uh, additional folks um, got the Pfizer BioNTech uh, COVID-19 vaccine, and half of them exercised. Uh, and half of them uh, did not exercise. They also included mice. There's a, a mouse arm to this because they were trying to figure out like, yo, if there's an effect, why? And uh, the study protocol that they used on the mi- on the mice probably wasn't going to work for humans. Okay, so what happened? So for the uh, both of the the different flu vaccines, um, so again, one was like just for a specific stru- flu strain, and the other was for the seasonal flu. Uh, the group that exercised, they exercised for either 90 minutes, um, doing light to moderate uh, activity on a exercise bike. After they got the vaccine, um, another portion of them exercised for 45 minutes only. Uh, and then another group just sat around for 90 minutes, presumably watching the office. So I assume that's what they had going on in the office. Uh, and then they drew their blood right before they got the vaccine. And at two weeks and four weeks after getting the vaccine, just to measure difference in antibody titer response. They did the same thing with the COVID-19 vaccine. So again, everybody got the vaccination. Part of the, the study group exercised for 45 minutes. Another part of the study group exercised for 90 minutes. And another portion of them did not exercise at all. They drew blood before they got the vaccine. And then at two weeks and four weeks. So what was consistently seen across all arms of this study was that the folks who exercised for 90 minutes after getting the vaccine had significantly higher levels of antibodies at two weeks at four weeks, like very high, much, much higher. Uh, whereas the group that exercised for 45 minutes after um, the vaccine were no different than the controls at any time period. So that suggests there's some sort of dose response relationship here. You got to like do enough like exercise. Effect. Yeah. I do wonder because it was just like low intensity stuff. Sure. Yeah. What if you just, you know, upped the intensity <laughs> or if they lifted weights, for example, right? It'd be interesting to me if like, cause, cause if uh, I'll get to that, I'll get to that. I want to talk about the mouse, mouse, mouse model first. So with the mice, they got the vaccines, but they were the half the mouse group was treated with anti-interferon alpha antibodies, which are these antibodies that went and blocked Interferon alpha. Interferon alpha is this like molecule that stimulates uh, antibody production, antibody cell class switching, B and T cells. It's basically a stimulant, right? You get enough of that stuff floating around, immune system is going to go cray. So they thought, hey, we're going to put an antibody that blocks all this and just see if that's one of the reasons why uh, exercise may work because exercise increases interferon alpha. And lo and behold, the mice who got treated with the interferon alpha antibody, the blocker, they're... uh, uh, immune reaction to the vaccines was significantly less than those uh, who didn't, suggesting that there's a role here of interferon alpha. But, you know, as always in the research, more study is needed. So the take home from this is that, yeah, exercising after you get the vaccine tends to increase antibody levels. What we don't know here, what we don't know is despite the large gap that persists at two weeks, four weeks, potentially longer, does that actually further, you know, increase the efficacy of the vaccine? Right. Do people actually, are they actually less likely to, you know, 
uh, experience an infection or severe disease or hospitalization or death, we that's not been necessarily looked at, nor do I expect it will be. <laughs> right. That's a, but so that's a clinical correlate. So when Austin and I talk about clinical outcomes versus mechanisms and that clinical outcomes are superior as far as like affecting what we do, recommend, et cetera, over mechanisms, this is a mechanistic study. Cool. Antibody titers are higher. Yeah. But so what? Yeah. People don't care about their antibody titers unless it actually helps them live better, live longer, or something like that. I expect Rhonda <laughs> Patrick to have an Instagram reel with a million <laughs> views saying something like, exercise after vaccination increases the efficacy of your COVID-19 vaccine by 3,000%. You're like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the I guess my criticisms of the study, I wish that there was like also an intensity arm. Uh, like, so, so maybe it's 10 minutes of high intensity, higher intensity stuff to see if we could, if you're trying to use this as like a behavioral adjuvant, so like get the vaccine, then instead of going and sitting and waiting for side effects, go exercise (laughs) or like, imagine if you found out that doing like a set of, you know, lat dumbbell lateral raises on the arm where you got the shot, (laughs) right? Like increased the, your tighter levels at two weeks and four weeks by a significant amount. Yeah. So you just would get the shot. You do a set of lateral raises on one side, go out the door. That would be cool. And and like scalable, right? Telling people to exercise for 90 minutes if they're not yeah. already engaged in exercise. And yeah. and that the highest risk people who would benefit the most from, you know, this kind of immunization are those who probably can't perform 90 minutes of exercise, the elderly, frail, you know, multi-morbid folks yeah. and things like that. That's not but a they, practical thing to tell them to do. But it would be cool if you could do like a hand grip test or like, hand, like you know, do the hand grip thing 10 times. Do some sit to stands from a chair if you can, you know, things like that. Get moving. Yeah. yeah. Importantly, there was no difference in the amount of side effects that people reported from the vaccine or duration of those side effects between the people who didn't exercise and the people who did exercise. So again, if there's this fear like, yeah, but I, you know, maybe I'll have worse side effects. Probably not. Probably not based on this. Although again, small, small study, all the caveat, general caveat supply, but I wouldn't expect you to, if anything, I'd expect your antibody titer levels to be higher and your side effect risk and experience going to be the same either way. So, or maybe you can even make an argument for some exercise induced analgesia, some, some pain relief, you know, there's all kinds of hypothetical things that could happen, but point is, you know, doesn't matter. <laughs> just yeah. keep exercise, keep training. <laughs> yeah. So if the question is, uh, just got vaccinated, what do, uh, would train. We did. Wait, we, we did. We all, well, I mean, I can say this now because the gym is closed down, but the gym I used to train at right when the vaccines were like, like full force being distributed, there was a sign on the gym when I walked in one day, it said, uh, no entry. If you've been had any vaccination in the last 14 days. And, And the only rule was you couldn't wear a mask at the gym. And I I'm like, I'm, I think I'm sensing the, the kind of environment you're describing here. I was like, guys, what the heck is going on? Here? <laughs> and so, I mean, I got some shade on Instagram where people were like, are you supporting this gym? And I'm like, dude, no, I don't even pay a membership. Like, honestly, I'm just trying to train. Like I'm vaccinated, like the risk benefit here for me or whatever. And it's not, not an ideal situation, but like, you know, here's, here's where we are. Uh, whether or not that's correlate a causal for them shutting down versus just correlation, you know, hard to say, but glad I am not in that situation right now. Uh, in any case. Yeah. I thought that was a cool study. The mouse model was interesting. I went into the, the anti-interferon and interferon alpha data from exercise 
it's just one of those things that goes up with exercise. It's, there's like some stimulation via muscular contraction, particularly eccentric exercise that jacks up interferon alpha levels and that stimulates the immune response, which has an effect on satellite cell recruit, like all that sort of cascade stuff that helps recovery, remodeling, et cetera. And I was like, cool. But like desirable post-exercise inflammatory response. What you, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. People, what? No. Oh gosh. I don't want inflammation. I'm all inflamed. It's like, yeah, well, sometimes that's a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes you do want that. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I couldn't find anything else on like, like what is the magnitude of interferon alpha elevation and like any other clinical correlates that may be useful, but we'll see more, more mice are going to help us (laughs) figure this out. So uh austin anything else you want to include on episode 169 of the barbell medicine podcast i think that does it for today i think that does give people a lot to chew on for a little bit that's right so all the studies uh, are linked in the description below all the podcasts that we've done um that we've been guests on are also in the description below linked to our seminars apparel all that sort of stuff check it out if you want to support barbell medicine again this has been episode 169 of the barbell medicine podcast we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine i'm your host dr jordan feigenbaum joined by dr austin baraki thank you for listening before you go anywhere if you could leave us a five-star rating and a review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness see you guys next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.